the year was 155. The place was the Roman province of Asia, the city of Smyrna, and the persecution of Christians that was sweeping across the empire came there and to the palace of the proconsul who ordered his soldiers to go out to a farm outside of Smyrna and to find and arrest the bishop of the city, Polycarp. They brought him into the arena, and the crowd was wild and bloodthirsty. They wanted him executed at the stake. But the proconsul had compassion, raised his hand, and silenced this rowdy crowd, and called out to Polycarp and said, Polycarp, Curse the Christ and live. Polycarp, the historians tell us with strong and resounding voice, said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How dare I blaspheme my king who saved me? And with that, the proconsul's hand came down, and Polycarp became a martyr for Jesus Christ. He was, at that time, about a hundred years old. And you try to figure out, how did he do that? What was it about him that could give him that strength and that courage, that trustworthiness, to so trust Jesus and to be trusted by Jesus in this extraordinary circumstance? And I don't know that we have the full answer of that, but it seems to me that at least in part, it was from his relationship with his mentor, who was the Apostle John. You know, if you're familiar with the biographies of Jesus, that there were thousands who thronged him, hundreds who followed him, a dozen who were counted as his disciples. Out of that 12, there were three that were the inner circle, and there was one, John, described as the disciple whom he loved. It was a most unusual relationship between Jesus and John, which I think in turn he taught to Polycarp and Polycarp taught to others. John trusted Jesus. He trusted him enough to forsake prosperity. If you connect the various dots from the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of John, and others, you can sort of get a picture of the prosperity from which John came. He was a member of the family of Zebedee. And the family of Zebedee had household servants. Servants at a time when poverty was rampant, so unusual. And they had a business, a fishing business on the Sea of Galilee, but they also had a home, perhaps a prosperous home, in the city of Jerusalem, uh, miles away. And on that Holy Week day, when... Jesus was being tried and beaten. It was John who had immediate access into the palace and the presence of Caiaphas, who was the high priest. So this is most extraordinary. He was from a rich family that was powerful when there wasn't much of a middle class and had access to one of the most famous and powerful men in all of Israel. And yet one day... He came across this obscure rabbi from Nazareth, and he was enamored with him. He sensed in him that he was different, that God was on him and in him, unlike anything he had ever experienced before. He spoke like no man ever spoke. 
And he was so drawn to him that he decided to walk away from business and family and prosperity and follow Jesus. Understand at that point, he could not have known all that we now know about Jesus. He didn't realize that he was the son of God. He didn't have any idea of a trajectory to the cross and certainly not to the resurrection. He just knew that Jesus was someone he could trust, enough to forsake prosperity, and enough to risk his life. It was on that Good Friday at the crucifixion mound that the women were present, but the disciples of Jesus were in hiding. They were fleeing, and probably rightly so, because they knew that there were Romans who would not just kill the leader they were after, they'd kill anybody that was associated with him. The women, perhaps more courageous, but probably in that culture less at risk. But John was there. John was there when everyone else was frightened to be there. He stood at the foot of the cross, knowing full well that the next cross could be his cross. But he trusted Jesus. Enough, if need be, he would die with him. It was a while back that I was part of a team of people in conjunction with uh, World Relief. And we were traveling across the Sahel of Africa, looking primarily where wells were being done, uh, dug in that uh, arid climate. And there were five of us uh, in a Toyota Land Cruiser. Uh, if it was just five, it would have worked. We also had a driver and a translator. And we were jammed in. The air conditioning didn't work. The windows were open. It was probably 120 degrees or hotter there on the edge of the Sahara Desert. And I was in the passenger seat in the front, and Judy Anderson was in the middle next to me. And she told me a story. I kind of shouted it because the windows were open and the noise was great. She told me that when she was a little girl, the daughter of covenant missionaries in the old Belgian Congo, that she had been taken by her parents to a very large celebration of Christians, thousands and thousands of Christians who were there, and they were celebrating the 100th anniversary of the coming of Christianity to that part of the Congo. She said it was, in typical African fashion, a very long day with lots of food and festivities, with music and speeches, and the day was about to conclude when an elderly man insisted that he had to speak to the crowd and he said that he knew something that no one else knew and that if he didn't tell it, the information would die with him. So he had to say. And what he told was that 100 plus years earlier, when missionaries had first come to that area, his people didn't know what to make of them, didn't know about this book and had never heard of Jesus or his gospel. And they just didn't know whether to believe or not believe. And so the leaders got together and they came up with a scheme. And the scheme was that they would slowly, one by one, poison the missionaries and their families and watch how they died. And they would make the judgment of the credibility of their message on the basis of how they dealt with the deaths of their own. I've tried to imagine what that was like. I don't know the details, but... I imagine that perhaps first it was a child who got sick and no matter what they did, the child didn't get better until one horrible day she died. And they buried her and thought that was one of the tragedies of missionary service. But then 
six months or whatever later, the father and another one of those missionary families, he gets sick. And nothing in their books seemed to cover it, and eventually he too died. And then the wife in the first family. And one by one, this new little cemetery began to fill up. I've wondered if they tried to go back home, if they tried to trek through the Congo and back to a boat and, and, and go back to where they had come from, where it was safe and where there was relatively modern medicine and where their lives and their children, their little children, could be saved. But they didn't. They stayed. They trusted Jesus. And they all died. And this old man said, when we saw how they died, we decided to believe in their Jesus. They trusted Jesus for something that they never saw. They didn't know where this was going to go. They didn't know that a century later there would be thousands of people that were there committed to Jesus Christ because of the way they dealt with a difficulty that they didn't even understand. They were like John. They trusted Jesus enough to risk and to give their lives. John trusted Jesus enough to remain anonymous. You know, there are four New Testament Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call it, and our Bibles actually say that, the Gospel according to St. John. It's printed in bigger than regular font at the top of John chapter 1 in most Bibles. But you know, that's not part of John's Gospel. That's an editor's edition. John never wrote that. So you can read the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John, and you will never find his name in there once. He never uses his own name. He refers to himself as the other disciple. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. You see, he trusted Jesus that if his name would be forgotten and lost in obscurity, that was Jesus' decision to make, not his. He wasn't going to promote himself. He wasn't going to put his name in the front or on the cover. And if Jesus, I can't think that he imagined it. If Jesus would decide instead that cathedrals and cities across the world and probably millions of moms and dads would choose to name their cathedrals and cities and sons after John, that was Jesus' decision to make. He trusted Jesus enough to forsake prosperity, enough to risk his life, enough to stay anonymous. Ah, but you've kind of heard all of this before. Of course, that's what a Christian's supposed to do. We believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. If we believe in anything close to radical discipleship, then Jesus makes the calls and we're committed to him and he's trustworthy. And we say that. We have lots of songs where we sing about our trust in Jesus. So maybe the front page story for this Good Friday is not that John trusted Jesus, but that Jesus trusted John. Jesus trusted John with his gospel. So there are four gospels. And if you read through the New Testament, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you are a careful reader, as you finish Matthew and start reading through Mark, you say to yourself, I just read this. It's the same thing I've already read. And you are correct, because 95% of Mark is verbatim in Matthew. 
So if you've read Matthew, you've pretty much read Mark. And while Luke is a longer New Testament book, it covers pretty much the same material. Theologians call it the synoptic gospels. They're synonymous. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're all kind of pretty much the same. But the fourth gospel, that's different. <clears throat> that has new dimensions of theology. It has quotes from Jesus, stories he told in parables. It has miracles he performed, and none of which are reported in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So Jesus had more of his gospel story to be told, but who could he trust to write it? There's an interesting couple of lines near the end of John's gospel that says that all of the things that Jesus did, if they were written down, the world itself could not contain the books. So who could Jesus trust to pick some miracles but never tell anybody about the other miracles? to report on some sermons but leave out others, to make quotes but not all of the quotes, to take trillions of words in all of the books that could fill the world and out of them narrow it down to 21 chapters. Someone who was trustworthy, who would get it right, who knew what he was doing, someone who was an eyewitness, who was there. He knew he could trust John. And it's because John was trustworthy that we can quote that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus trusted John with his gospel and with his love. It is indeed, if you think about it, an extraordinary thing that Jesus, who loves everybody, has one disciple who is described as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm not sure that we can get our heads totally around understanding every detail of the relationship, but apparently Jesus, like us, wanted a best friend. But how can someone be the best friend of Jesus, the Son of God? Who can Jesus trust to tell about when he's down and discouraged, to tell about the things he doesn't want everybody else to know? Who can... Who can he always depend upon? Who, who can be his best friend and won't take advantage of it? Won't ask for favors, won't ask for personal miracles. Yeah, I try to imagine if we took everybody in this room and sorted us all out, you know, sort of put us in line uh, on who Jesus loves the most and who Jesus loves the least, and you're at the head of the line, and it's you. You're, you're Jesus' best friend. You're his top disciple. You're, he loves you more than anybody else. I know what you're going to do tonight. You're going to go home and you're going to buy a sweatshirt. And the sweatshirt's going to say, Jesus loves you. And I'm his favorite. And that's what you're going to put there. Because, because that's the inevitable temptation. He needed to have someone he absolutely could trust. And he knew he could trust John. He could trust John with his gospel and with his love, and with his mother. Before Jesus could speak the words on Good Friday, it is finished, there was one very personal matter that he needed to address and take care of, and that was Mary. Because you see, in that Jewish culture, it was the responsibility of the eldest son to take care of his widowed mother for the rest of her life. And Jesus couldn't do it. Now, 
we can have a theological discussion about how the omnipotent and omniscient Son of God has a need because God is self-sufficient. But somehow Jesus had this need that he wouldn't be there. He needed someone else whom he could trust to take care of Mary in his place. Jesus only spoke seven times on the cross. Um, some may think that's not very many. And actually, it's quite a lot. From what we know about crucifixion, and we know a lot, actually, from history. Most interesting is a journal article was in the Journal of the American Medical Association, jointly written by a physician at the Mayo Clinic and a pastor that delved into the history, but also the physiology of crucifixion. And while they weren't all the same, we do know that crucifixion was invented by the Phoenicians, but kind of perfected and expanded by the Romans. And within the army, it was a disciplined function that was given to trained soldiers who were executioners. And it went kind of like this. For one thing, the victim of crucifixion was stripped naked. Now, we have art and we have pictures that show Jesus wearing a loincloth, but that is probably highly unlikely that that was actually the case. Keep in mind that while the Greeks often went out in their Olympics and didn't wear clothes, the Jews were extremely modest in the way they, they dressed. So it was a, hu a humiliation, an added humiliation to the horrors of crucifixion. So what they would do would be to take the victim of crucifixion and with two or three soldiers hold him down on a cross that was flat on the ground. There were different shapes of crosses, but let's assume it was the traditional cross that we think of. And holding him down and probably kneeling on the shoulder, another soldier would then take his arm and bend it at the elbow. That was crucial because crucifixion wouldn't work right if the elbow was not bent and then take out a spike. And contrary to the way we usually think about it, as the spike going through the palm of the hand, in all probability that was rarely, if ever, done. Because if someone was crucified and the spike was through the middle of the hand, hanging on the cross, the skin would tear and the hand would be set free. They didn't want that to happen. So what they did was they would feel for the soft spot, you can do it yourself, at the base of your hand on your wrist. And then they would drive the spike through that soft spot. And then when they had done that on the one hand, they would go over, bend the elbow on the other arm, and then drive another spike through the bottom of the hand, the, the wrist, on the other side. When they had finished that, they would then move to the legs. And again, the protocol had to be followed. The knees had to be bent or crucifixion would not work. <clears throat> so they would bend the knees and sometimes use a single spike through both feet, but probably most often would have two spikes and drive them in. And then when the person was nailed to the cross, they would have a hole prepared, often rock-lined, and the soldiers would pick up the cross, now heavy, with the victim on it, and they would drop the base of the cross into the hole, and then the horrors of crucifixion could be watched. Sometimes it went on for days, they didn't usually bleed to death. That would have been an exception. Some died of thirst. There were wild animals that came and tore at them. It was, uh, it was horrific. Jesus died within just a few hours. And assuming that his death was similar to other crucifixions and what we know from the record, 
what happened was that as the victim was hanging by the spikes in the hands, that a paralysis would come across the arms and into the pectoral muscles, which made it extremely difficult for that person to breathe. It meant that he could exhale, but he couldn't inhale. And we all know the horror of being caught where you can't get your breath. And so hanging there, the person on the cross would do the only thing that could be done, and that was push down on the nails in the feet in order to push the body up. And when the body was pushed up, then the paralysis would stop long enough to, <gasps> to be able to get a breath in and breathe as many times as possible. But the pain on the feet was so excruciating that it couldn't be sustained. And so the man on the cross, it was usually men, women weren't typically crucified, would, just couldn't take it anymore, and he would drop back down again. So crucifixion became an ongoing process of heaving up and dropping down, and heaving up and dropping down. If you've read the Good Friday story, maybe you remember that those who were mocking him said, you claim that if the temple was torn down, you could raise it up in three days. You can't even pull yourself up to get a breath. What are the chances you could ever rebuild the temple in three days? Now, I do not mean to maximize the physical pain as great as it was, because I know that the weight of sin was infinitely greater but all of this is to say that those who were crucified didn't do a lot of talking. They didn't have the breath to do it. So Jesus spoke only seven times in the entire crucifixion ordeal. And what he said is recorded that it went like this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. The rest of the disciples, when the persecutions came, they spread out. They went all over the place. Peter went to Rome. Thomas went to India. Others went into Africa and into other parts of Europe and into Anatolia, the modern-day country of Turkey. They spread the gospel, but one didn't go. Only one, and that was John. John stayed behind in Jerusalem for the rest of Mary's life because Jesus trusted him to take care of his mother. John trusted Jesus. Jesus trusted John. If you've long been around church, if you've read the Bible, maybe you've thought about or been asked 10,000 times, do you trust Jesus? And I hope 10,000 times you've said, I do. I trust Jesus for my salvation, for eternal life. For anything and everything, I trust Jesus. But let this Good Friday be the time 
when the question is asked, does Jesus trust you? You see, Jesus needs people who will be faithful to him and his gospel in every walk of life, in every circumstance. Some are seemingly easy and others are painfully difficult. So who can Jesus trust to work in a company where the boss is cruel, where the pay is low, where the hours are long, where the whole company is dysfunctional? Because he has plenty of volunteers who are glad to work for a company that is booming and pays above average wage and has a wonderful boss and large vacation allowance. There are plenty of volunteers to be a Christian in those best of employment circumstances. But who will be faithful to him in what we might call the worst of those circumstances? Who can he trust with a delinquent son or daughter, a prodigal child, to be sure he has plenty who are ready to sign up and be Christians with perfect children who get straight A's and have straight teeth and straight everything else that they're supposed to have. But who can he trust for the child who doesn't measure up the way you want the child to measure up to do what you want to have done? Who can he trust with the child with difficulties and disabilities to show to all of the world a faithfulness to Jesus Christ and a discipleship in circumstances that a parent would never choose. Who can he trust with recurring illnesses, with an escape from remission and a new diagnosis that you prayed would never happen? He has plenty of people who are ready and willing to be Christians with good looks and good bodies and good health. But who can he trust with the health that nobody wants. You see, we are Christians and we are followers of Jesus and we are to be in every circumstance of life to show who he is and that his gospel is true and that it works in big houses and little houses in good jobs and lousy jobs with prayers that are answered and prayers that go unanswered with questions that we amazingly find the answers to and other questions that plague us for our entire lives and we never get an answer from God. Who can he trust in every one of those circumstances? On this Good Friday, 10,000 times you've been asked, do you trust Jesus? May Jesus say, I trust you. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you on this special day for sending your son to pay the price to die on the cross for us. And we'll say it one more time. We are not only grateful, but we promise to be faithful. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you will trust us. We want to hear the well done, good and faithful servant. But tonight may we hear the words, your words, Jesus, to us, your followers. I trust you. Praying in your name, Jesus.